0: Well, let's open up, please, to Hebrews chapter 4. Father, we are so grateful for this time together tonight, and we're so very grateful for your word and your Holy Spirit that you've given to us to grow, to grow in intimacy with you And we pray that we would encounter you tonight, that we would have a life-giving, refreshing and renewing encounter with Jesus Christ in your word and with your spirit tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 4, we are encouraged in... uh, verse 16, the writer of Hebrews encourages us therefore to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We encounter those moments from time to time during our lives, don't we? A time of need. It may be a need that we're experiencing Uh, on occasion. It may be a need that we're addressing in someone else's life. Acts 10.38, we find that uh, Jesus went about doing good and healing all those who were sick and oppressed of the devil for God was with him. We may be called upon to minister to the needs of others. And at that moment, we find ourselves at this throne of grace, finding grace to help this other in their time of need. What is grace? Curious word. Of course, we're familiar with the, um, with the common definition it's unmerited favor. We can't earn it, we don't deserve it. And while that's certainly true, I think there's something uh, much more to grace that as we explore it, I think what we'll find most encouraging. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians, please, chapter 12. Jesus is addressing... Paul, as Paul has implored him three times that this thorn in the flesh which he has received might depart, Jesus says simply to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. I think the King James reads, my my strength is made perfect in your weakness. I'm reading from the uh, NAS. Uh, for power is perfected in weakness. I would like you to say that with me. Power is perfected in weakness. That's curious, sort of a paradox. What What does that mean? You recall last week I, I said simply that uh, the rub of faith, the real challenge with regard to uh, faith in God is that it requires you and I to empty ourselves of faith in anything else, faith in everything else. Our faith rests in God alone. Do you recall uh, Jesus quoting Psalm 8 to the Pharisees when they began to rebuke him? The children were crying out praises to him. And uh, he quoted Psalm 8, my, uh, have you never read out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained praise? In uh, the book of Psalms, Psalm 8, we read thou hast perfected strength. What is a babe, a suckling? What is that the picture of? It's illustrating an important truth. Complete helplessness. utter dependence. If you leave a child alone, a baby, and you never tend to it, that baby will die. It hasn't the ability, the capacity to care for itself, to even meet its own rudimentary need. It is utterly dependent upon the mother and the father to live. The psalmist And in quoting him, Jesus is saying simply, real praise as an expression of our trust toward God, as an expression of faith, can only exist when we see ourselves as utterly dependent upon God. Thou hast perfected praise, for thou hast perfected strength. And why is that strength necessary? Psalm 8 continues, that you might steal the enemy and the avenger. Because, remember, we live in a fallen world. Paul went so far as to say in Second Corinthians 4.4 that Satan is the god of this world. And so life is often unfolding against the backdrop of conflict. Um, this World's system, the cosmos here, is a sort of battleground. And so there is an enemy, an avenger, that must be still. His efforts to to, um, erase the image of God upon man, his efforts to thwart God's plan and purpose in our lives, has to be resisted, has to be overthrown, overcome. And that's uh, experience through praise. But here we find uh, Jesus saying, Paul is, is crying out, deliver me from this thorn in the flesh, which we'll examine in just a moment. And he, he, he implores the Lord three times. And finally, Jesus says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, the way this has been addressed in some circles, unfortunately, I think, kind of enlists grace as a consolation prize. Sorry. You're going to have to deal with this. It's not going to get any better. But uh, I'll be there to console you in the midst of all your suffering. That is not What Jesus is communicating to Paul or through Paul to us. My grace is sufficient for you. This is power. I want you just to consider for a moment the effect Jesus had on those who brought to him their needs during his earthly ministry. Did he reverse those challenges? Did he bring remedy? He did, didn't he? Their circumstances were radically altered. The evil in their lives was overcome. They were healed. They were delivered on a few occasions. They were rescued from death. When Jesus shows up in his power the works of the enemy are overthrown. They're undone. And the works of God take their place. That is what... uh, I really shouldn't take that call, I guess. Um, That is the will of God. I've often wondered... um, if it is not the will of God to heal those who come to him seeking healing and restoration, I wonder why we never saw an instance of that in Christ's earthly ministry. It is not the will of God to heal those who come to him in faith why didn't we see at least one occasion during which Jesus turned to the petitioner and said, I'm sorry, it is God's will for you to remain burdened with this illness that he might be glorified. Can you think of a single occasion in the Gospels in which something like that happened? Why? Why? Yeah, I'm just asking. I didn't get that. He did. But no one ever came to him and was denied healing. Never. And I can't help but think that uh, God was being somewhat remiss if Jesus is the express will and image of the Father didn't provide, ha- having not provided at least a single occasion during which Jesus turned to someone and said, "No, not God's will for you to be healed." I'll leave that there. It's something to think about, pray about. We'll move on. You don't know? You've not been following? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I've bounced all over. We're still in Second Corinthians. <laughs> Did you really? Second oh, okay. Corinthians 12, um, verse uh, 9. My grace is sufficient. You for power is perfected in weakness. Now Paul is addressing this thorn in the flesh. What was the thorn in the flesh? There's some exotic ideas. It was ophthalmia some have said, an eye, a rare eye disease. There's a whole host of ideas, but if context means anything, I think Paul has already explained in some detail precisely what the thorn in the flesh was. Let's look back at the 11th chapter of the same letter, beginning with verse 1. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. There were challenges of the church in Corinth. Super apostles, I think he called them. False teachers who had slipped in and were teaching uh, things contrary to the word of God and were causing real challenges there for the church in Corinth. But I am afraid, verse 3, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most imminent apostles, but even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge. I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you, and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I, I do not love you? God knows I do. But what, but what I am doing I will continue to do, so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting." these false teachers, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do... Now, keep listening closely, because he is explaining here precisely Uh, uh, what he has endured, these thorns in the flesh. Verse 16, again I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish, so that I may also boast a little. What I am saying, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you, being so wise, Tolerate the foolish gladly. For if you tolerate it, if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face, to my shame I must say that we have been weak by comparison. Now clearly he's chiding uh, this church. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day have I spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, in dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to what? Verse 30. My weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus... The king was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. Paul seems to have had a rather rough time of it. <laughs> Very challenging. Now, remember though, in fact, let me just uh, turn there real quickly. You may write this down. Acts, the ninth chapter, verse 16. All of this was foretold. Uh, when God had commanded Ananias to lay his hands on Paul. Remember, Paul had had this experience on the road to Damascus. Struck down from his horse, saw a great light, had an encounter with Jesus Christ, and scales formed over his eyes so that he was blind. Ananias was to go pray and lay hands on him. And uh, Ananias was arguing with the Lord because of Paul's reputation as a a persecutor of the church. And in verse... uh, uh, 15, Paul uh, speaks to Ananias and said, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of, in, instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how he must suffer for my name's sake. So he has explained to Paul that he is going to what? Suffer. Suffer what? Ophthalmalia? crippling disease and sickness? No, intense and continual persecution. Not simply, I just don't like you. You offend me. Beaten multiple times to within an inch of his life. Imprisoned. Threatened with death. Chased by mob. Stoned. Stoned. I think that means he was, had rocks thrown at him. I don't think it's euphemistically stated like we use it today. Now let's continue with verse 1 of chapter 12. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, now most scholars agree that he's referring to himself, who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, Such a man was caught up into the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except in regard to what? My weakness. And what is this weakness? Contending constantly with false apostles, slanderers, False teachers and persecutions and beatings and hunger and imprisonment. Did Jesus say we will have tribulation, referring to persecution? Didn't yes. Yes. Jesus did not say uh, that these sufferings would include these maladies that he went about healing people of. But we will endure persecution for the gospel's sake. And Paul was enduring more than his fair share of persecutions. In fact, when we review the lives of the other apostles, it, at least we have we have no written record, at least, of any who suffered so consistently and so greatly as did Paul. Verse 5, on, on behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except in regard to my weakness. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one will credit, we, credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, these revelations he had received of Christ, For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, the manner in which some have explained this, you would almost guess that this messenger of Satan was somehow in the employ of God. And yet Jesus exposed the absurdity of that logic in the Gospels when he said, A house divided. If, if I cast out Satan by Satan, by Beelzebub, this is a house divided. It, it cannot stand. But if I, with the finger of God or God's authority, am addressing the kingdom of darkness and, and, um, and exercising authority over it, then you know the kingdom of God is at hand. This messenger of Satan was obviously sent by whom? Well, he was a messenger of Satan. And to do what? To prevent Paul from being exalted. What does that suggest? Do you you recall the parable of the sower? Jesus explained the parable privately to the disciples. He said, the sower soweth the, the word. And when the word is preached, anyone tell me Mark, Mark, the fourth chapter, Satan cometh immediately to steal away the word which was sown in their heart. Why? Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. Satan wishes to steal away or at least neutralize the effect of the Word of God in our lives. It is what he most feared. Uh, Paul had received extraordinary revelations. He was proclaiming those to the church. A messenger of Satan was sent to him to prevent him from being exalted. We associate that with, well, so that he's not lifted up in pride. No, so that the fullness of these revelations are not revealed in and through his preaching. To imagine this other notion that this messenger of Satan was in the employ of God to keep Paul humble, you would have to ask yourself, what logic would there be in disclosing a great mystery to a man and then beating him half to death so that... (laughs) He isn't exalted by that knowledge. I think you would say, ha, you know, lay off for a while. Don't tell me any more secrets. You're killing me. Now these words which he was receiving were life. Satan was coming to undermine their effect and influence in his life and through his preaching and teaching. And so what did Jesus say to him? Did Jesus say, I'm not taking this thorn away from you? And recall, th- thorn is used, uh, th- this, this, uh, it's used eu- euphemistically, in, uh, or metaphorically rather, in, in, um, I think in, in Joshua, in Numbers, and in Judges, of people who are tormenting the children of Israel. They are a thorn in their side. Did Jesus um, say, No, Paul, I'm not delivering you? No, what did he say? My grace is sufficient. What does that mean? Is that is grace a consolation prize? No. It is through grace that we emerge victoriously in the midst of challenge. My strength is made perfect in weakness. No, Jesus didn't say, I'm not delivering you. I'm only going to give you uh, the ability to endure it. Listen, in fact, Paul uh, uh, addresses this in... um, I think it's Second Timothy. Let's turn there. Second Timothy, the uh, third chapter. Second Timothy three, um, yes, verse ten and eleven. Now you followed my teaching, conduct purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and suffering, such as as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all, the Lord rescued me. So did he leave him? No. Out of them all, he rescued them. He's echoing David's cry. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, the psalmist declared, but the Lord delivers them from them all. As believers, we do not deny the existence of problems. We deny the inevitability of defeat. If we are overcomers, think of the language that's employed regarding believers, we're overcomers. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. We are victorious. These are all language uh, or, or words uh, that suggest conflict, but conflict which is eventually overcome. So when we are urged to go to the throne of grace to find, grace to help in time of need, we are being um, urged to go to our Father to receive the resources and strength required to overcome in, in whatever particular situation uh, we are dealing with. And if it's on behalf of another person, we are going to the throne of grace. Tonight, when we pray with people, we'll be going to the throne of grace. We'll be appealing to our Father to meet that need through His grace. And He wants to do it. We, we're not imploring Him. We're not begging. We're not pleading. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Remember, what we enjoy access to through Christ, we enjoy access to through love. Redemption was set in motion because God so loved us. We're not begging and pleading. Um, We are gratefully and joyfully calling on our Father, Abba, Daddy, God, to meet our needs. Now, we're going to close with this. Let's look at Ephesians, the second chapter. I I hope I've given you something to think about, and I hope I've not confused you. I hope I've challenged some ideas. Now, your job, have I given you something to think about? I may have challenged you. Now, here's something I want you to bear in mind. It's your responsibility to to come to church with an open mind. Do you remember those, uh, we're told they were more noble, the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they came ready to receive the word. That is, they came with an open mind. I'm going to give the man a hearing. But then they returned to compare what they had heard with what was written in God's word. And against that metric, they determined the validity of what was communicated to them through the preaching and teaching of whomever it was they had listened to. That's your responsibility. I'm sharing the Word of God with you. This collar means very little in that regard. It doesn't make you infallible. I could be wrong. I could be sincere, but I could be sincerely (laughs) wrong. And so I want to encourage you. If I've challenged you, if I've created questions, bravo. That's part of my job. Now you do yours. Take these questions. Take these challenges back to the Word of God. Read it for yourself. Pray and ask God, help me to understand and, and you determine if this is so. And if it is, and you have to adjust your thinking, great. God give you grace to do that. Let's look at Ephesians, the second chapter. Um, there's a bit more that I would like to cover, but I'm going to try and, and actually keep this to 30 minutes. or are very close to it. So he said, look, my grace is sufficient for you. What do we do with grace? We, we receive grace to help in time of need. You recall what Peter wrote. He said, um, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him. That's how we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We cast all of our cares upon him. Remember, real faith in God begins when faith in everything else ends. So we humble ourselves under His mighty hand by casting all of our cares upon Him, knowing He cares for us. Then He warns us, Be sober, be vigilant, ever watchful, because your adversary, the devil, walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist, steadfast in the faith. That's what we're to do, is resist Him. Right? How? steadfast in the faith. Remember, that we spoke last week about that mustard seed of faith. A man asked me after the how much faith is enough? The faith that's enough is the faith that persists. It doesn't have to be great. It just has to be persistent. When Jesus was returning to Jairus' home, his, his little girl had uh, when he first went to bring Jesus, he said, she's at the point of death, but I know if you arrive home at my home before she dies, she'll be healed. But they received word that she had died. And Jesus turned to him and he said, don't begin being afraid. Keep believing. That's, uh, that's enough faith. Enough faith is persistent faith. It just continues. Whom resists." steadfast in the faith. Grace then finds access to our lives and situations. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I think we all know it. For by grace are you saved. Are you saved? You have been saved. But you are being saved and you will be saved. We've been born again. We've passed from death unto life, but the outworking of salvation in the fullness of uh, the fullness of God at work in us, that's a, that's a process, isn't it? And each time we receive from God, that salvation is more fully effected in our lives. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of work, lest any man should boast. It is the gift of God. So let's think of it, sort of like um, a mathematical equation. Let's call grace God's response to our need. And let's call faith our response to God's answer. If a need persists in our lives, do you think it's because God has failed to provide an answer? Or perhaps have we failed to receive it by faith? For by grace are you saved through faith. It is the gift of God. We receive it joyfully. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It is God's gift to us because He loves us so. Let's Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that you've given us. And he is our teacher. And we ask you now to teach us. As we return home and begin to consider this word, as we study this word, I pray that our thoughts and our minds will become reconciled to truth as you reveal it, Lord. And we trust in you to do that. We pray that your purposes are realized in us, Father, as we learn better to appropriate all that you've given us in Christ. In Jesus, amen. Well, I'm so glad you were able to come out tonight and I hope you found this helpful. It was uh, a joy to share with you. And now, um, Brother Don will be over here praying and uh, those who, who want prayer or ministry,